Well, so God ordains it, I guess. <laughs> okay. Well, my name's Aaron Davies. I'm an elder here uh, at Branch of Hope, and Pastor Paul, he's either doing a funeral or traveling for a funeral today, so we won't have communion or benediction. I'll, I'll pray at the end uh, for us, but um, um, us elders have been filling in for him from time to time, and I was actually supposed to fill in a month ago was sick, but now I'm feeling better. Um, today's uh, verse is from Mark, chapter 10, verse 6. Hear now the reading of God's Word. But from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, just like Jehoshaphat and the people of Israel, Uh, We are facing a battle, um, not one that we have instigated, Lord. Um, And even though violence may be the weapon of some choosing, Lord, our weapon is to love you. Our weapon is to serve you and obey you. Our weapon is to look to you, Lord, and to worship you. Um, We often do not know what to do, but we look to you, Lord, to win this battle. And we know that you will because your son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for us and for your glory. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be enlightened uh, by what we have to read here so that we may serve you better um, and so that these strongholds will be broken down around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. While some of you may know that I'm an engineer, um, which is why I try to cram a lot into one little message, I work particularly with small medical devices, and I'm a software engineer which means I'm regularly, well, and especially with devices, which is different from web development. With devices, I'm regularly working with what really is the foundation of software coding, which is ones and zeros. You guys ever heard of this concept of ones and zeros? Either on or off, like a light switch? Well, a computer chip is basically filled with like trillions of those little switches, on or off. And from that, you can make decisions, yes or no. And if you combine all these yes or no's, you eventually have things show up on the screen, bytes get transmitted, you can do things. Well, there's, there's really no writing of any software if we don't have ones and zeros. That's the foundation of coding. If I'm writing software and I put it on a machine that can't hold its ones and zeros, guess what? The software is not going to run. Or if it does run, it's going to be very dangerous, especially if I'm working on like a pacemaker or something like that, right? I need a one to be a one and a zero to be a zero. Paul says something similar in his letter to the Corinthians. But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. So he's saying, look, you can't listen to me. My words can't be trusted if you can't believe that my yes is yes and my no is no. Otherwise, you don't know what I'm saying and there's a breakdown of the relationship. In the same way, you're going to end up with a dysfunctional computer. And what are you going to want to do with that functional computer? Probably going to want to, like, throw it out the window. I mean, if you, <laughs> we've all been angry at our computers, right? Well, Jesus declares in the verse that we read today that God made us male and female, one or the other. And what we learn from that verse is that your identity was his decision from the beginning of time. The Bible tells us in Romans 1, 
that denying this natural function, as it calls it, that God gave you will ultimately and very sadly bring about a murderous mindset like a computer with broken switches. There's going to be wider breakdowns of the software of our society. Does that analogy make sense? This is foundational. But it turns out there's more to it than just mere acknowledgement that I'm a boy and you're a girl. For as far back as I know, it's been very common for us to behave and express and even own and try to normalize and celebrate dysfunction, dysfunctional relationships, dysfunctional um, marriages. We celebrate in art and movies and TV and music. There's just this ingrained belief in our society that relationships are bound to be dysfunctional, and we make comedies out of it and, and so on and so forth. And really, what you have to do is simply navigate your way to it, whatever is best that works out for you, because it's going to be dysfunctional. So you just got to figure out what your little piece of the pie is. Well, you know, I make software for medical devices, and um, imagine if uh, even, let's say we have the ones and zeros are holding on, right? I'm a one, I'm a zero. But I have, you know, some bugs in my code. It's not really doing what it's supposed to do. Instead of, you know... What if I just simply talked about how bad my code was? Or if I just, uh, you know, I may enjoyed having bugs in it. Or um, just kind of focused about the details of the bugs and just how, how true and real the bugs are in my code. <laughs> You'd be like, well, we'll just fix it. Why, why are you appreciating it so much? Why don't you fix it? That's kind of how our media is today. Well, you're not going to be able to have any functionality in life. If not only a man is a man and a woman is a woman, but man needs to be fully man and woman needs to be fully woman as expressed in Scripture. And that's going to be our journey today. See, my goal here in this message is not simply to warn you about what's happening right now in the present time in our nation. It is a battle. It is a war. But we have plenty of voices in the media to keep you occupied with what the, next, what, what the latest battle is. I am going to be focused on the solution from Scripture. That is our weapon. I have a a little bit of a long quote. Bear with me. This is from John Angel James. He says this, In the present age, how much has been said and written respecting improvements to society? But never let it be forgotten that all radical improvement must commence in the homes and hearts of our families. I'll pause right there. That's where the biggest spiritual battle is. The inquiries on how best to cure existing evils or to supply existing defects, which do not begin here with the families, will be superficial in their nature and unsatisfactory in their results. It is in the correct understanding of the nature of parental obligations and the right discharge of the duties of man and wife towards each other and their children that the chief restorative remedy for the diseases of a nation must be sought, as well as the best means of preserving its health. Now watch this. Institutions may be set up to aid or supplement a father's efforts or alter the nature or widen the sphere of women's mission. And an artificial state of social life may be produced, varnished and glittering with the showy devices of human wisdom But it will be found in the end that the purposes of the God of nature, the great author of human society, cannot be frustrated. 
The parent must still be the educator of the child and home the school for the formation of character. This is an Englishman in 1860, John Engel James in his book, Female Piety. I mean, I felt like it was written today. So you can see here we have this artificial state of social life through all of our programs, but we need to stop looking to the hills of politics, and we need to focus on our homes, on our marriages, on our children. We need to build a culture, not resist the culture, build a culture of what love actually is in our families. As Christians, we are the ones who own love and beauty and marriage. It is up, up, up to us to live it and to teach it and to express it. We need to put to shame all the rebellious parades and the songs and the TV commercials that try to make everything else look normal. And we need to ask ourselves these questions. How do we want our kids to go about getting married? My wife and I are going through a little sermon series with our oldest daughter, Janessa, on the Song of Solomon. We want our kids to really understand the beauty, the glory, the power, the reality, the difficulty, and the intimacy of love the way it really is. We need to identify as men and women the way this book describes men and women. Now, don't get me wrong, this is not an easy book. Um, If anyone needs to hear it the most, it's me. That's a trustworthy saying, God saves sinners of whom I am the chief. You can always say that, by the way. It always works. You really have to think about the symbolism in this book, but I'm convinced with prayer and study, the Holy Spirit will bring us to understand it. In the same way, I used to have no clue about Revelation, and Pastor Paul has also said he's had to revisit it, and now I'm kind of amazed, actually, at um, how much we can enjoy that book now. So here in the song, you will have a man and a woman who are dating. They get engaged. They're anxious for their wedding day. They get married. They come together in marriage. They resolve conflict. They resist temptation. And they stay enraptured the entire time. Isn't that awesome? But why is it the Song of Songs? Which is really what it's called. Um, I think that it's because it's the greatest song ever written. And that really other songs can only really be appreciated in so much as they reflect some reality that this song reflects. All right, so we're going to go sort of passage observation, passage observation, not point argument, point argument, like a typical Presbyterian, so I'm being a very bad Presbyterian right now, so forgive me, but I think it's going to do us well. All right, song 115, the beloved is the groom and the Shulamite is the bride. Behold, you are fair, my love, says the groom, behold, you are handsome, my beloved, So right from the start, this is a song of love and marriage. This cannot be anything other than a man and a woman. We've established that. It's a man and a woman. It's kind of absurd to consider anything else. He looks at her and considers her fair. She looks at him and considers him handsome. This flame doesn't end for the entire book. She says, Our bed is green, the beams of our houses are cedar, and our rafters of fir. Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight. His fruit was sweet to my taste. Now ask yourself, what kind of man is this? She feels very comfortable around him. She feels protected under him. He, she enjoys being near him. 
She feels safe. It's a great delight, she says. He's fruitful, he is strong, and he can support her. And their house is of cedar. It's strong, it's firm. She's not worried about it. It's not a house built on sand. He is skilled what he does. Earlier, at the beginning of the book, she says, your name is ointment poured forth. And not only that, she recognizes that other women find him lovely. But she's not insecure about that. She says, rightly do they love you. She understands what marriage is, and we'll get to it in a second, and that's why she's not insecure. But instead, she's getting confirmation from her friends. Girls love to chat and get confirmation. This is a good guy. uh, Song 2-2, like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Now, some of you probably grow roses like we do, and um, there's thorns on those guys. And let me tell you, those are some serious thorns. I don't know if you ever really looked at them. To me, it's still an amazement of creation that God grew thorns like that. I mean, you have this nice rose, and it's just cut. And sometimes I'm cleaning up yard scraps, and there's a thorn in there, and I, I know it. So a man needs to see other women, not only, not only forsaking all others, but he needs to see other women who are not his wife as thorns. If I go and touch, it's going to be blood. I don't want to do that. Remember how much suffering and dysfunction that you can read about even in the Bible when someone like David went and grabbed a rose that he shouldn't have grabbed. Back to chapter 1. I'm dark, says the bride, but lovely. Do not look upon me because I'm dark, because the sun has tanned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I've not kept. So now we're looking at what kind of woman this is. Well, she's working. Her brothers are making her work. She's submissive and it hurts. I'm dark. I've had to do all this work out in the sun. And she's doing manual labor. She's not weak. She's strong. She works. She's productive. But she's also very feminine and she's pretty. She's concerned about how she looks. She wants you to think of her as pretty. Now back to chapter 2. He has brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. Here we have a big party, and he is announcing to the world that his banner over her is love. It's an engagement. We're going to get married, honey. Now she's anxious. She's lovesick for the big day. Sustain me with some good food because I'm dreaming of his right hand and his left hand, but don't awaken love until it pleases. It's not time to let that passion go yet. The marriage day hasn't come. But it's interesting the way this poem is written. It says, don't stir up love until it pleases. Well, what is love? How do we please it? Let's go back to Genesis 2. Adam says this when God brings Eve to him. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You can see 
that God did this. He saw that man was lonely and realized that he needed a helpmeet. And so he created woman and brought her to him. It is God who is the love who pleases to bring the two together. As we read from Mark, well, if you read later in Mark, it says, Oh, God brought together, let no man separate. It is God who brings... uh, Adam is looking and saying, This is a part of me that God took, made a woman, and brought her to me. I didn't do this. Adam was asleep. In the same way, I look at my own marriage, and God brought my wife to me. And knowing, understanding that that's how marriage really works, is God bringing a man and a woman together. What we really do in a marriage is make a vow that we're not going to rebel against the relationship that God has built together. It is Him who brings together and we are simply recognizing that. Same, same way that we, when we baptize our babies, we're saying God has brought a child into a covenant family. We're simply recognizing it and making a vow to do our part, which is to raise this child. And so she recognizes that there's no good to awaken this passion until this vow of recognition of what God has done has been made. When you say, may the blessing be upon me if I keep it, and the curse be upon me if I break it. That's what a vow basically is saying. So don't awaken the passion until that promise has been made by both. Okay. Now they're engaged. They're going to date a bit. Normally you think of dating happening before engagement, right? But I think the reason for this is is that really... um, you're really focused on marriage as the purpose of the relationship. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, he stands behind our wall. He's looking through the windows, gazing through the lattice. See, he remains at a distance. He's honoring still, awaiting the day of the vow. But his focus is his desire on her. And now she's behind the family wall. The family is protective of her. and she's, But he still has her attention on her. Then he says this, My dove in the clefts of the rock, in the secret places of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. You see, she's not easily accessible to him. Uh, When we went to Big Sur, you know, you see these giant cliffs over the ocean, and we saw a California condor up way in the cliffs. And if it wasn't for the giant yellow tag on its wing, we probably would have noticed what it was from the other turkey vultures flying around. Not easily accessible. Birds have a tendency of being not easily accessible like that. And this is analogous to the lady. She can take uh, flight very quickly if she's startled. If danger is about, she's gone. So his approach to her is very careful. Not, hey. It's more like, let me see your, your face. I, wanna, I just want to hear your voice. If you've, been, if you've been looking through the verses up to this point, you'll notice that the only thing that he's made a comment on as far as how she looks is her face and her neck. Nothing else. He's self-controlled. He's content. And he just wants to hear her voice. A man's manner to his wife should always be this gentle I always get, whenever I get, you know, I mean, as a man, there's conflict, you get upset. I like it when this verse comes to mind because it reminds me that nothing has changed even after marriage. Throughout the rest of this chapter, 
he encourages her that he is a fruitful man, that she can leave her work and be under his care. What's interesting, and I know this is different in the ESV, because if you read the ESV, this is going to say that this is, uh, this is uh, in verse 15 of chapter 2, that, that the woman's speaking, but I really think it's her brother speaking, which is what the NKJV says. Uh, chapter 2.15 says this, Catch us the foxes, the little foxes that spoil the vines, for our vines have tender grapes. Now, I don't, I don't think that... Um, uh, typically, this is kind of thought of like protecting the marriage, and we should protect the marriage from problems that come in, but I don't think that's what's going on here. Uh, they're actually looking for her to come back and work. They're saying, hey, you're an essential employee. What can we do to, uh, you know, maybe we can raise your salary or something. Well, we kind of need you back over here. The foxes are kind of getting in here since you've left the job. You can't really go and be a wife and a mother now. We need you working. But she's free from that obligation, and she'll make that clearer towards the end. He belo- she belongs to him, and he now belongs to her. Typically, the vines here, like she uses the, the, the analogy of vine as herself. So I don't think this is talking about the marriage. But anyway, okay, now chapter 3. Uh, she says, By night on my bed I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will rise now, I said, and go about the city in the streets and in the squares. I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who go about the city found me. I said, Have you seen the one I love? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one I love. I held him and would not let him go until I had brought him to the house of my mother and into the chamber of her who conceived me. So again, she's yearning for that day. She yearns that he would be right there next to her on her bed, but he's not there. Despite her yearning, they are separate. So she goes about in the city to look for him. She wants to go on a date with him. She can't find him. But look, look, notice how she refers to him, the one I love. This is not an arranged marriage. She loves him with her own soul. In fact, she's hoping to bring him to her mother to show, look, who I have found or who God has brought to me. There I am using that language, right? Uh, and where are they going on a date? They're going in the city. There's nothing shameful about the relationship. She's out in public. She's saying, do you know the one I love? She's asking the watchman. That's how public their relationship is. This is not done in secret. It's not a shameful um, relationship. Well, now we get to the wedding. From chapter 4 to, chap- to the beginning of chapter 5, and I won't read through all these verses, but he will look upon and enjoy every part of her beyond the face and the neck. Again, Adam refers to Eve as flesh of my flesh. Where once he now remained outside the wall, he's now able to enter the Garden of Spices, as she refers to himself. Uh, You may notice at the end of chapter 3 that Solomon's wedding there is described, but I don't think that this is Solomon getting married. And most commentaries say that this is Solomon getting married, but I don't think the book really says that. I think Solomon is is here, is, is drawn as a contrast of all of his pomp, and the queens and wives that he's going to collect as the contrast to where this man and this woman are really, truly devoted to one another in love. He says to her in chapter 4, You are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes, 
with one link of your necklace. A garden enclosed is my sister, my spouse. A spring shut up, a fountain sealed. So she was protected by that wall. She was never opened up before him. And notice how she, he says, my sister. I don't think this means like my blood relative sister, but someone whom he has companionship with. Like the, um, we know the different uh, Greek words for love, like agape and phileo. Um, you know, agape is a, a, a selfless love that you can show for, your, for anyone, for your neighbor or whatever. Phileo is the kind of love that you show uh, like a brotherly love, a companion, like a friendship, like you're my friend, I like you for, for this, the next reason we have something in common or whatever, separate from the eros love, which is kind of what the focus of this book is. But the point is, he sees her as a companion as well. He enjoys being with her as well. But nevertheless, even though he is able to uh, enjoy all of her, he still is taken simply by her face alone. And she, he sees, as she was hoping when she was saying that she was dark earlier, he sees no flaw in her at all. Now, I'm also kind of guilty. Well, I don't know if it's guilty because I really enjoy it, of thinking this way about my wife. Um, I guess sometimes it can be... Um, unhelpful because I'm still supposed to wash my wife with the water of the word. Um, but this is probably focused more on looks than, than anything else. Um, all right, so now they're married. Right away, though, we have a test in chapter 5. The bride wakes up. She says, I sleep, but my heart is awake. She's not sleeping very well. It's the voice of my beloved. He knocks, saying, Open for me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is covered with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I've taken off, and then she says, I've taken off my robe. How can I put it on again? I've washed my feet. How can I defile them? He would like to spend some time with her. She's kind of done for the night. They're not in agreement. See, this sounds to us pretty trite, right, as guys? Well, I know you've taken off your robes. Put it back on. Not hard, right? You're going to wash your feet again. It's okay. Do it all the time. My head's already covered with dew. But see, it's not like women have many things that they're occupied with. I really got an appreciation for this. Um, if you look at Isaiah 3, there's six verses that God spends listing the things that women wear. Literally six verses of just things that she wears. She's very concerned with how um, she keeps herself. So he puts his hand to the knob, but he doesn't force it. He's still tender with her. And this works out for his benefit because she'll eventually change her mind. But then what happens? Now she changes her mind. And he's unavailable. Chapter 5, verse 7. The watchmen who went about the city found me. They struck me. They wounded me. The keepers of the wall took my veil away from me. She goes out to find him, and she can't. At this point, their romance is a private affair. So she goes out to the city in disguise, in a veil. But she's mistreated. She's embarrassed now that she's looking for him. And if you take this sort of very poetically, I believe you could even extract this into saying that the state, the watchmen, really have no business in meddling in this kind of in, uh, in, in relationship affairs. It can only do harm if it meddles. 
Then she says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, tell you, tell him that I am lovesick. Notice how she no longer warns her girlfriends about awakening love. She's saying, no, I actually, I, she, he needs to come home. I want him here now. She misses him. But what's interesting in the remainder of this chapter is that the women are not impressed, actually. They're kind of saying, well, what's going on here? They talk and they say, look, aren't all men the same? Where did he go? You see how he's treating you? Where did he go off to anyway? Why can't you find him? Why is your man different from all the other men? Well, you'll notice in that chapter, she goes on to describe him almost in a way that Christ is described in the beginning of Revelation, like we found in chapter 1 of Revelation. Hands of gold, a body of ivory, legs of marble, a face like a cedar. Even in the midst of this conflict, even in the suffering that she's going through, even in the uncertainty of what the answer to the questions are, she describes him that way. That is how we should describe our spouses. I remember taking the train for a bit to work, and I would sit on the train, and there would be these guys there. You know, I'm not trying to dog on a 9-to-5 work schedule, but I'll just call them 9-to-5ers. They're in there not because it's a 9-to-5, because they just want to do their thing and get out. Right? You can just kind of tell that's sort of the mentality. It's not a healthy mentality at work. But man, have I heard so many complaints about wives from these men. And it, it almost made me sick. I had to get up and move to another part of the train because it was so sad to hear that that's how they felt and they joked together about it. We should not succumb to that temptation to badmouth our spouses, especially in public. We should assume the best of her of, of each other, and that's what she's doing in this situation. I don't know what he's up to, but I know he's awesome. Well, we find out a resolution to this conflict. It turns out he had gone to work. <laughs> what a relief. <laughs> there you go, ladies. My husband's good. He's making money. She says again that they belong to each other, and his words towards her are very telling. He says in chapter 6, My love, you're as beautiful as Terza, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. Turn your eyes away from me they have overcome me. What a beautiful verse. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down from Gilead. And now this is telling. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and virgins without number, but my dove, my perfect one, is the only one. So you can see whether he's in Terza with the flock being a shepherd, or if he's at church in Jerusalem, or if he's even at war with his army makes me think of my nine-year-old son, Ethan. We were at the park yesterday, and he's playing with his two sisters. And I just overhear Coco saying, not every house is a battlefront, Ethan. <laughs> but we love fighting, and armies are awesome. But even that, they only remind, that, they only remind him of her. You are more awesome than all those things. And so she knows that she doesn't have to battle his interests for his attention. And now those eyes have become the comfort of the marriage. That he, they're even too wonderful for him to look at. Now notice, I think he's being very uh, pointed in verse 8. He's saying, I don't envy Solomon. He's got 
60 queens so far and 80 concubines. And if you do a little bit of math, he's kind of on pace to the 300 and 700. He's about 14% of the way there. She really is the only one for him. And she can be assured that his eyes are not going anywhere else. There's a lot of imagery now. It doesn't take much for a Google search, even an unintentional Google search, to show a lot of things that you don't want to see. Right? And these are mass-produced caricatures. This is not reality of women and and men and women. This includes celebrities, the way they act, and cartoons, and stories. These are all fabricated. But the question is, as men, can we see our wives in the flesh as more awesome than anyone else, imagined or real? Is she so beautiful that the look of her eyes is too powerfully sweet for you to see? Now, for those of you who are unmarried, um, or especially if you're young, um, this is sort of the kind of things you need to have in mind as you approach um, this. Chapter 8, verse 6. She says to him, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. Love is as strong as death. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. Its flames and flames of fire are most vehement flame. You might kind of get an idea as why I really wanted to talk about this book and why I think it's very important for our time. Love is as strong as death. It's a very serious subject. Jealousy is cruel as the grave. Flames are flames of fire. These are not things that you play with. These are not things that we're trifle about. These are not things that we redefine. Love is a life and death manner. And maybe we can get a little more appreciation why Leviticus 20.10 considers adultery deserving of death. I hope that it becomes more apparent to us now. Jesus warns us so strongly about merely lusting after a woman in Matthew 5. Even in our own eyes that no one can notice, He warns us about doing that very strongly. There's an untold amount of heartache that can flow from awakening love in any part, in any way apart from this right here. And she is saying that, and it's a beautiful verse. Without that vow of commitment between husband and wife that God has brought together, we are breaking apart what God intended to be permanent. Instead of enjoying a house of cedar in the grass, A wayward girl will enjoy a house in the sand only to have it blown away when the storm comes. Same thing for a man who builds a house out of cards on sand. Adultery and immorality are dangerous. They have certain and permanent consequences in this life. And we've seen that in a generation or two now. And just like we've seen even with these destructions of the floods... It's a real mess, right? You have a flood, rain, could flood overnight. How long does it take to clean up the mess? Like that church in eastern Kentucky. Pictures of it, OPC church that was flooded. I mean, it's just, you could see what used to be a church and there's just mud all over the place. Okay, so how about the happy ending? There is a happy ending. So how is the marriage doing in the end? Well, we find out, chapter 8, later on. 
He says, you who dwell in the gardens, the companions, listen for your voice. Let me hear it. She says, make haste, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a young stag on the mountains of spices. They're still enraptured with one another. He still loves to hear her voice. In fact, he feels jealous about it. She likes to talk to her friends. The companions listen for your voice, he says, but I want to hear it. She still, uh, he still hopes that she will chat with him in addition to her friends. Uh, not instead, but in addition to. She still wants him to be youthful and strong. This is the second time, at least, that she's compared him to a young stag on the mountains. Um, animals are amazing at how they can go about in cliffs with these little feet, especially hooved feet, where I wouldn't dare to go with my hiking boots and whatever equipment I have. They just gallop along there, and she wants to see him that way. This is analogously talking about her himself, but even in a broader sense, he should be this way as far as his life is concerned throughout the vicissitudes, ups and downs. He should be a young stag who can handle these things. She feels comfortable under his leadership. Even as the years go on, if it becomes more that he's a young stag in heart, than he is in physique, right? We have a whole chapter in Ecclesiastes devoted to the fact that our bodies are going to fall apart. That even if, if we are blessed to, to live that long, this is what happens. But there's no reason that he has to get old in heart, at least not towards her. I'll never forget my grandparents. They lived to 92 and 89. And uh, at one point I was visiting. Uh, my grandfather was hospitalized because he had fallen over and had... Uh, his hip had gotten broken. He was on a basketball court with little kids, and he fell over. And uh, we had to. Uh, we went and visited him with my uh, grandmother, who was in a wheelchair. And uh, so we go down into his room with my grandmother in the wheelchair. And we we put her next to him, and and she is kind of has like a little bit of dementia at this point. She can't really remember everything. She she, she doesn't like looking at pictures because she's not remembering who they are. She does still at this point remember who I am, but she doesn't remember that I'm married and so forth. So anyway. That's kind of falling apart. We put her next to him, and he just looks over and says, you're so adorable. It gives her a big smooch. <laughs> I will never forget that. I mean, that's late into their 80s, right? He's in the bed. She's in a wheelchair, and he wants to give her a smooch. <clears throat> that's my dream, honey. <laughs> I mean, when that comes. Now, I don't want it to happen right now. <laughs> um. Okay, a final comment to Solomon, 8.12. Um, by the way, notice, he, she's, uh, we'll make this point, I think it's important. A young stag on the mountains of spices, they continue to consummate their marriage. The two still remain to be one. Outside of marriage, you're tempted to bring flesh together when it shouldn't. Inside of marriage, you'll be tempted to do the opposite. Things come up, you get busy, whatever. He disappears. What's he up to? He's working. She's alone. Bathsheba was alone. Uriah's out fighting. The temptation is going to be the other direction. But they stay together. Okay, to Solomon. My own vineyard is before me. You, O Solomon, may have a thousand. And those who tend its fruit, two hundred. I'm not working for other vineyards anymore. You can have all the vineyards you want, Solomon, and all your workers can make a ton of money. 
I don't need your endless extravagance. I don't need anyone, I don't need the state certainly to help me take care of my home, as uh, Mr. Uh, as John, I forgot his last name, Angel Adam, something like that, has said, we do not need these programs to help prop up the family. Verse 9 makes this comment about the next sister in line for marriage. If she is a wall, we will build upon her a battlement of silver. If she is a door, we'll enclose her with boards of cedar. It's important as families, as parents now, especially as I'm having uh, uh, teenagers turning into adults, we have to protect daughters. As she was looking at him from behind the family wall from unauthorized access, Now, you notice here it talks about whether she's a wall or a door. There's going to be uh, more or less, uh, there's going to be different levels of effort that are going to be taken by families to to do this, depending perhaps on the personality of the girl. But when she thinks of this, the wife, she recounts, she says, I am a wall, my breasts like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who found peace. So she built herself up as a wall, protected herself, and now she is somewhere where he can find peace. See, it would have been futile and dangerous for, her, for him to have been too close to her beforehand. She's a wall. There are towers here. Towers mean weapons. Weapons means hurt. The family is there to protect. But now that they're married, he finds total peace and satisfaction with her. It's completely safe. They have fully developed a relationship, and there's no shame now at all to be together. I comment on a personal note. I never knew what a healthy marriage was like. Um, I suppose it was somewhat stable when I was a younger kid, but my parents eventually um, did split when I was a teenager. And, um, you know, I thought... I didn't know any better. I wasn't a Christian. I didn't grow up in the church. I had none of this before me. And I thought that my parents' dysfunction was typical. Like, this is just kind of what goes on. This is what parents do. This is what mom and dads do. They, they do these fights, and that's just how it goes. As a kid, you just kind of grow numb to it. That's your environment. What else are you going to think about it? And then I saw what I saw on TV, and I heard on the radio, sounded like kind of a better deal, Right? There's like this passion, this romance, and there's stuff going on, and, and people seem to be able to handle things well on sitcoms, get through those situations. I'm thinking, okay, that's how I'm going to be when I grow up. That's the normative thing. <laughs> this is my catechism. This is how I'm growing up. I am now being taught to follow my own whims with regards to love and marriage throughout this whole operation. One time in college, I asked a young woman, a classmate, why she watched a particular show that was popular at the time about loose women going from man to man, and her response was, well, this is just how life is. This is how it's going to be when I graduate. This is what I expect to do as an adult. This is just so far off from what we've been studying here, so far off from what love and marriage is. Marriage really is a symbol of God bringing a solution to man, man being alone, needing a help meet. And it is the only facility that brings forth life. Man and a woman married brings forth children, the next generation. It is the only life-giving facility. 
And Christ, in His church, to which marriage is an analogy of, is the love of all love. Because like the man is supposed to give up his life for his wife, Jesus Christ forgave you and me all of our sins and has welcomed you. That's why I believe that God has expressed to us that perverting this symbol, this institution of marriage, is such a strong offense deserving of death. We were reading a little bit more around Mark this morning um, as we were looking at my verse at the breakfast table today. And I observed the Pharisees are asking Jesus at that point, you know, Moses allowed us to give a certificate of divorce, so can we divorce for any reason? And he's responding to them saying, no, from the beginning, God created them male and female. So what God has brought together, let no man separate. We actually went back and read what Moses said in Deuteronomy, where he says, if a man issues a certificate of divorce because he finds something he doesn't like in his wife, sends her off, she remarries, and if her husband dies, he can't take her back. So you can see the context of that law is not like, oh, so there are these certificates and you can do what you want. The context is, if you do this foolish thing rashly and then you try to autocorrect it later, you can't. There's consequences here that are permanent and you're not going to turn marriage into a mess. And they're asking Jesus, can we turn it into a mess? It is an analogy of Christ's love for his church. And so, we must acknowledge a man and a woman in a passionate marriage as the only true love. If you don't acknowledge that, you're actually doing the most unloving thing that you can do by affirming anything else, by saying that's an okay way of think, to think, you are damaging uh, reality. It's a lie. This is what true love is. Love and marriage belong to us as Christians. It was instituted by God. But we need to build a culture around it. We need to be expressing this. We need to have songs and movies and commercials come out of it just like this song has come out of a beautiful marriage. We need to build this biblical culture of man and woman. That's our real weapon against the onslaught that society is giving us right now. That is the weakness in the church that needs to be remedied. We need to be confident that God has made them male and female. Ones and zeros, the software won't run otherwise. And we need to remember also throughout all this that the purpose of it is that Christ has been given to us freely by the Father as the bridegroom for His bride, the church. I mean, that, that is the symbol of salvation. And so how important is it that we reflect this gospel truth in our marriages. Let's pray. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your, your beautiful word, Lord. I thank you for this poetry. It is difficult for us to grasp. There's a lot in here, Lord, but I pray for the marriages here, Lord. I pray for my marriage. I pray for the young uh, children who will, who will hopefully, Lord, be married one day. And, um, and for those who are struggling in their relationships or lack thereof, Lord, I pray that they would find ministry and comfort in this word. I pray, Lord, for those of us who are facing threats of their, through their work or through their relationships, 
of not acknowledging this truth, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen them and embolden them. Lord, we are coming to you, Lord, not knowing what to do, but we know that we can trust in you, Lord. So I pray we would take this to heart. I pray that you would resolve conflicts among us. I pray that we would be a culture of love that the world cannot deny so that they see Christ's love for his church and that they may be saved. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.